0: because it's an intentional action you can gauge. Is it skillful? Is it not skillful? When is it skillful? When is it not? What happens if you drop this garment of of intention as well? Hmm. And before we go to the reading passage, I'd like to point out that there are many passages in the canon where the Buddha does talk in terms of developing a strong, healthy, responsible sense of self. the ability to sacrifice a lesser happiness for a longer happiness or greater happiness that's one of the functions of a healthy sense of self. In other words, you don't think just in terms of immediate gratification, you think about over over the long term. You have to be able to project yourself into the future in order to think in the long term. And also take the, the the needs and desires of that self into consideration when you make these decisions in the present moment. This is a healthy use of self. Or when you realize that you've, you've been causing problems in your own life and it's time for you to straighten yourself out you can't help for other people to do it, that too is a sense, healthy sense of self. And the Buddha encourages that. In fact, if you look at his teachings on generosity, his teachings on virtue, teachings on developing goodwill as an object of meditation, they're all for developing a healthy sense of self. One of the reasons psychotherapy gets brought into Western med- Western Buddhism is we've dropped the generosity and virtue. We haven't developed that healthy sense of self, and we just go straight for a, you know, an analytical meditation technique before the healthy sense of self has been established. This is when there's kind of the backup. Oh, well, let's go back and do some psychotherapeutic work get to get that healthy sense of self going. Well, in the original teachings, that was provided by the teachings on generosity, the teachings on virtue. Even the teachings on goodwill, because as the Buddha said, it's for your own own long-term welfare and happiness that you develop goodwill. This is what gets us started in on meditating. But he also points that there do come points in the practice when your sense of self starts getting in the way. We saw a little bit of this earlier. If you, when we talk about states of concentration, if you start defining yourself as you know, the concentrated state, it makes it difficult to look at the concentrated state and see where you might get it more refined, or where you might develop it. If you get, a, say, to a particular state of infinite consciousness or nothingness and say, oh, this is my true self, stop. You can't go on, because it's hard to analyze your true self. If you look at it instead in terms of an activity, you did this in order to get to that state, you tuned in to this level. We're talking, I was talking with one of you just now. As you get more and more accustomed to some of these states of concentration, it's like you're tuning into a radio station. It's always broadcasting. All you have to do is tune the knob just right, and you're tuned right in. And it seems totally effortless. But there is an element of intention there. The intention to go there and stay with that perception, the act of tuning in is an element of intention. You've got to recognize that. And there also is an element of intention that keeps you there. So if you're identifying with these things, you can't see them clearly. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Buddha has you contemplate this whole issue of not-self. Now, not-self is not introduced only at the very end. If you start thinking about when you form your sense of self, even from a very early age, you're already beginning to to engage in this issue of defining, okay, what's me and what's not me? if If there's a particular toy that you or yours, like my brother who, Once he got his BMW, this is not just kids, he got his BMW, and as he said, it was like part of his spinal cord was plugged into that car when he drove it. (laughs) Anybody touched any part of the car, it was like they had scratched him, you know. You hold on to this, this is yours. And and as a little kid, you begin to realize, okay, if I I identify with this little truck as mine, I'm gonna be in trouble because my big brother also identifies it as his. Maybe it might be better just to kind of give it up. Strategic thinking. And this is how our sense of self is is, perfect, is, is refined, it's through strategy. You know, what works and when you hold on to things, if it makes you suffer, why hold on? And there are lots of things in life that we go through in life as we begin to grow up that we learn to drop our identification with that, drop our identification with this, because we see that if you hold on you're going to suffer. So this is something we're doing already. What the Buddha does is take us, have us take that particular procedure, take it to a further degree. So when you get into good states of concentration, you already have been working on this issue of self-definition, but also learning how to strategize. In fact, one way of defining your sense of self is it's a whole bundle of strategies for happiness. Because in the Buddha's analysis of dependent core arising, you have feeling, and on top of feeling comes craving. And only after craving comes your sense of self. In other words, you've got a feeling that you either crave, it's a good feeling, you crave to have it continued, the question is, how are you going to get that to continue? You begin to identify certain things in your experience as the things that will help you maintain that feeling. In other words, the producer of the happiness that you want. Or the producer of, if it's a feeling that you don't like, you want to have it done, okay, what, what do you have under your control? What is in your control that you can do to get rid of that uncomfortable feeling. So the sense of self is a strategy for happiness. It also depends on your sense of control, your ability to control the situation. Anything that's under your control, you say, okay, that's me. That's mine. And in many cases, it's an effective strategy. This is why we're so good at it. We keep doing it again and again and again. The other sense of self that we create, in addition to the the controlling side is the experiencer of the pleasures. So I'm the one who's experiencing this pleasure. You identify the pleasure as yours, or you identify the pain as yours, if you're experiencing the pain. But if you really look at the things that you're identifying with, in the, in the course of this particular strategy, you begin to see that okay, there is some suffering, there is some stress that's involved in this kind of strategy for the self. And this is where the Buddha's teachings on not-self come in. It's another kind of strategy. Now, for many people, the teaching of not-self is, is something that's really unappealing because it sounds upfront like he's saying, okay, there is no self. You're, you know deep down inside that your sense of self is part of your strategy for happiness, and it's like the Buddha's denying you your strategies. And there's a resistance. But what he's actually doing, is presenting you with an alternative strategy for happiness, which is learning how to let go of the things that are on a very subtle level causing, causing stress, causing suffering. And the way to do that is to learn to look at your sense of self as an activity that causes stress. In other words, you see it as an optional thing that you've been adding on to experience. Look at passage 13. There's a case where an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person assumes form or the body to be the self. now that assumption is a fabrication remember we talked about fabrications being intentional so simply assuming that your body or any any physical thing might be yourself okay there's an intentional element there so once you see that there's an element of intention you say what is the cause what is the origination what is the birth what is the coming into existence into existence of that fabrication and the buddha says okay it's because an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person touched by that which is felt, born of contact with ignorance, craving arises. Okay, this, again, as he's saying, that our sense of self comes from craving. Because we need our sense of something that's under our control that can act as the agent to get what we crave. However, that fabrication is inconstant, fabricated, dependently, core-arisen. The craving on which it's based, the feeling on which the craving is based, the contact, the ignorance, all these things that give rise to your sense of self are inconstant, fabricated, dependently core-risen. In other words, it's all pretty jerry-rigged. Mm-hmm. We like to think of a nice, sense solid sense of self, but it's all something that's just kind of put together. And if you look at your sense of self as it goes through time, it changes all the time. You're constantly creating a sense of self for this particular purpose. Then you drop it because you need another kind of sense of self for that particular purpose. Which is just well, why letting go of one sense of self is not doesn't cut through everything. <laughs> Monks are supposed to sit very demurely, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. It's because you have lots of strategies that your sense of self is so complex. You know, there's the you who's the mother, there's the you who's the daughter, the you who's the 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 consumer, the you who is the purchaser in the store. You play all these different roles and all these different senses of self come into play. There's the self who wants to be nice to the salesperson so you get a good price. And then you don't get a good object. And you have to be a very different self that goes in to go to the complaint department. And you find yourself putting different elements of your personality together for that particular purpose. It's all this sense of strategies that we have. But all of them are, as I said, these jerry things out of very inconstant, very impermanent, fabricated things. Okay, And when you see this, there comes a sense of dispassion. That this sense of self for which you have been struggling to gain this pleasure or whatever, whatever form of happiness it was that you wanted to get out of that particular strategy. When you see that the strategy itself involves stress and suffering that's really unnecessary... Now, until you've gotten into good, solid states of concentration, you still want to hold on to that sense of self because you feel, I need this. But there will come a point in your, in your meditation when you realize, I don't need this anymore. There's a, there's a way that I can let go of this and still be happy. And that's when you really let go of that particular sense of self. However, it's not only just identifying with the body. Look at the way the Buddha explains this. Or you don't assume form to be the self, but you assume the self as possessing form. Or form as in the self, or self as in form. Now, I have a Korean student who always complains about this Indian way of being so obsessively detailed. But this is, it, it's, it's very psychologically astute here. It's not always that we identify the body as our self. Sometimes we have a sense of self that owns the body. You so say, I'm just using this body, it's me in here somehow is using the body. Okay, your self is inside the body. Or you can think of yourself as a cosmic self in which this body moves. In all cases, and in whatever that case is, whether it's an infinite self or a finite self in the body, the body in the self, the self as the body or the self as possessing the body, in all cases it's a fabrication, it's a strategy. And because it's a fabrication, it's an activity, it's a kind of karma, that ultimately leads to levels of stress and suffering that you want to learn how to drop. And one way of learning how to drop it is just looking back at where does this particular sense of self come from and you see that it's put together. It's nothing inherent in your experience. And then the passage goes on to say that similarly with feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness, in other words, Take the case of consciousness. You either identify yourself as the consciousness, or you have a sense of self-possessing the consciousness, or your idea that you are inside the consciousness somehow, or the consciousness is somehow inside this all-encompassing, larger sense of self. In all those cases, it's still an activity. It's still a kind of karma. There's an intentional element there. And so in terms of the, the teachings to Rahula, you learn to look at, okay, where is this activity harmful? And until you get the mind to be very, very still, it, you, sometimes you don't see the very subtle levels of harm. But when you see them, then then you're more willing to drop it. Now, sometimes you may hear that the Buddha you know, said, negated the idea of your individual separate self, but he affirmed the idea of a larger, more cosmic Connect self, but this next paragraph shoots through that one. It says, This self is the same as the cosmos, i.e., I am, I am the cosmos. You know, the cosmos is me, the universal sense of self. This I will be after death, constant, lasting, eternal, not subject to change. Okay, this too is a fabrication. You've got to look for that. Or you may decide, okay, there is no me at all. I'm gonna annihilate whatever sense of me I have. That's a fabrication as well. Or you may be doubtful and uncertain about who you are, or doubtful uncertain coming to no conclusion about the true drama. Even that is a fabrication. You can't escape in an, in an easy way. You've got to get to the mind to a point where it is willing to drop fabrications of any kind. And this is what the teaching of not-self is doing. It's trying to get you to a position through the concentration where you are willing to look at the intentionality of the mind of any form, no matter what, no matter how closely you may hold to it. Look at it simply as cause and effect, intention and result. And see where you can drop it, where you can, can discontinue that particular intention. To get to the mind to that point, as we said earlier, where you pull out all intentional input into the present moment. The purpose of all this is to reach the unconditioned. So in this issue of the relationship between not self and karma, the issue is not so much okay. Given that there is no self, what does the karma? What receives the karma? Switch it around. Okay. Given that there's karma, how does it? How does your sense of self fit into this? And it is a type of karma. It's a type of action. It's, it's a bundle of strategies for attaining happiness. And as I said, in some cases you really do want to develop a strong, mature sense of self, just so you can function in the world. But you also have to see clearly that that sense of self is an activity. When it, And when it is completed its function, you'll have to learn how to drop it. And this is what the not-self strategy is for, that no matter how you define a sense of self, even if it's cosmic or connected or whatever, you still have to realize that's a fabrication and because it's a fabrication, it's going to result in a certain amount of stress. So you want to drop that as well. Now, as for the Arahant, who has totally attained awakening, okay, he or she is able to use the sense of self when it's useful, but also put it down, because it sees clearly that this is an activity. And as, as Arahant's dealing with activity, okay, there is no karmic consequence to their activities. Their intentions are all skillful. But as the Buddha says, they've... They've learned how to act intentionally in such a way, but there is no karmic consequence. So they can use the sense of I when it's useful and put it down when it's not. And not suffer. Suffer either way. And before we go for questions, I just looked at that. Who put this clock up here? Can I ask the New York Insight people? This clock has been telling me that it's 11 after 2 for the past 2 days. <laughs> <laughs> Now, is this a message to the teachers to make sure that our teaching is timeless? <laughs> <laughs> so, just wanted to call your attention to that. Okay. 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 Final passage, passage 14, then we open up for questions. Okay. Okay. This, monks, the Tathagata discerns. The Tathagata, of course, is the Buddhist name for himself. Either means one who has become true or one who is totally gone. I i.e., gone to the deathless. This is what he discerns. It, it's, this is taken out of a context in which the Buddha is talking about his discernment about the limitations of different viewpoints. And he discerns that these standpoints, thus seized, thus held to, lead to such and such a destination, to such and such a state in the world beyond. Okay, in other words, you look at views of any kind as activities. Okay, where does this view lead? We talked earlier about, given our assumptions about you know, whether we want to see the world as totally determined or as totally chaotic, or you want to look at things in terms of the Buddha's teachings on, on, on karma and causality. Okay, there's a purpose in those views. Because okay, the view itself is an activity, it's supposed to lead someplace. Because there's an intentionality in everything we think and do, even our views. Not so much, you know, try, we try to be as accurate as possible, when we make a view of the world. But even then, our view of the world has to do with our intentionality. In other words, take this room. If someone came into this room with the intention of destroying it, they would see this room in one way. If someone came in with the intention of fixing it up, they would see it in another way. If someone came with the intention of, let's have a party in here, they would see the light fixtures or whatever. They would focus on different aspects. There's no concept that's going to cover all of reality all of our realities have to do with our pur- our purpose, with dealing with whatever that is. And so the Buddha's pointing at this, okay, no, no matter what concept you have, it's got an intentionality. So this is one of the reasons, as I said earlier, why you'd want to develop the the views, the views that the Buddha proposes because the intentionality is to put an end to suffering. But even then, okay, you, even that view, you discern what surpasses the views and yet so discerning what surpasses them you don't even hold to that act of discernment. In other words, you see your discernment, your understanding, your wisdom, that too is a kind of karma. Again, it's a tool, you use it for its purpose and then you put it down. Discerning that, you don't hold to that act of discernment and as you're not holding to it, unbinding is experienced. So even when you gain great understanding or great wisdom through your practice, you have to learn how to put the wisdom down because it, too, is an intentional act. It's there, it's supposed to serve a purpose. My, one of my teacher's basic instructions is, when you gain insights in your meditation, don't jot them down. Don't try to remember them. It says they're there to do the work. If, you, if they do their work, make a change in your mind, you don't have to remember them. If they don't make a change in your mind, they're obviously not right. Put them down. So let them do their work, and then if they really are valuable, they'll stick with you. So whatever great insights you get, you don't have to memorize them. Let them do their work and then let them go, because so they too are an activity. Okay. Okay. Knowing for what they are, the origin, ending, allure, and drawbacks of feelings, along with the emancipation from feelings, the dhatagata, through lack of sustenance or clinging, is released. Okay, this applies to all activities in the mind. When you understand where they come from, how they end, what their allure is, and what their drawback is, in terms of their being you know, there's an intentional element in there, and then you also see the emancipation from that particular intention. That's how you gain release. So it's in this way that the the teaching on karma goes. You know, from the very beginning of the practice, everyone knows that you know, karma is you know kindergarten Buddhism. This is what you teach kids, the principles about karma, about how to be responsible. But the same principles go all the way through to release. It's, there's not a, a point where you drop the one, that teaching and go to something else. And it's because they go all the way to release that this gives value to our basic instructions on how to be generous, how to be virtuous. Because the qualities of mind that you develop in being generous and virtuous and learning to look at your intentions the way the Buddha taught Grahula to look at his intentions. Those go all the way through to the point where even when you gain discernment into your sense of self, you see that too as an activity that has to be treated in the same way as any action. The discernment that enables you to see that point, that too is an activity that has to be treated as any other activity. And then you let them go. Okay, That's how you get to release. This is one of the reasons why if you ever want to explain the Dharma to anybody, start with those teachings to Rahula and you'll see they connect to anything. All steps of the practice. So it's always good. I always find it useful to start there, because it's the same pattern that goes all the way through. You're meant to see even your sense of self, even your discernment, your states of concentration, whatever in the practice. These are kinds of activities. They're to be gauged, to be followed when they give, when they're skillful and give harmless results. But when you start seeing that they're causing harm, then you stop. And with the stopping comes release. Questions.
1: Yes. So, for those that accept uh, the concept of rebirth, what is being reborn is whatever set of, of intentions, were in one strategic set, and when, when the body dies,
0: Buddha. I I that was one of those questions the Buddha refused to answer.
1: He
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. said, <laughs> "All you need to know is the process. The process of craving keeps you going."
1: that you said was that if you drop everything that's out of your control then those are the things that are of, the, of itself at that moment uh, but let's say you're born blind uh, it's not a fabrication that you're blind right. you, what's fabrication is your ser- series of intentions and strategies to deal with blindness but that physical fact of being blind is part of yourself at least at that time it's part of your body it's part of your body which isn't that not, all, not all of your body is fabricated it's, is, I mean, your view of your body, may, like whether you're attracted or not attracted, is a fabrication, but the physical body itself isn't.
0: It's fabrication. Your experience of the body is fabricated.
1: The experience, but there is some sort of physical body, at least for that temporary moment.
0: Yeah. But your experience of that is, is a fabrication. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with your experience of reality directly.
1: But your experience is also based on the fact that your body is physically blind, so which you have no control over.
0: Result of past karma. Okay. Yes. <laughs> So you teach it to be a nice predator first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this gets into the whole issue of another one of the teachings that the Buddha gave to a, a youngster was a series of questions: What is one? What is two? What is three? What is four? What is five? Up to what is what is ten? It's kind of a little catechism for novices, and some of them are pretty. You know, if you know anything about Buddhist teachings, you know what is five of five—the five aggregates. What is three—the three kinds of feeling. The really interesting one is what is one, and the answer is all beings subsist on food. We're all eaters. And this is not just physical eaters, but also emotional, mental eating. So inter-being is inter-eating. And so what we're learning how to do is to be polite, good table manners eaters. <laughs> but eventually to get to the point where we don't have to feed anymore. This is another one of the reasons why the Buddha said it's better to get out of this whole system of contingency and, and causality. Or is there an element of predation? There's a question back there? Yes. Is it fair to say that um, a purpose of all of this, if I asked myself, what oh, was my car going to be here? To, mm-hmm. um, to, to reach an unconditional... Right. To, a, a little bit back to my question yesterday, Dr. Richard, mm-hmm. about the idea of spoken intention, so I'm trying to kind of bring some sort of closure... Mm-hmm right I mean, the pattern, um, for all of it, to reach uh, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would, would that say one of the purposes the purpose mm-hmm. now if you don't want to go that far the Buddha says he's got another array of other good purposes too but this is the primary purpose
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes um, I'm, I'm interested in this um, teaching you're giving about Strategically developing a sense of self for certain purposes that you're willing to abandon after the purpose has mm-hmm. been uh, completed. Millions of people are familiar with the Pali just through the Dhammapada. And the Dhammapada, in the 20th chapter, in the way, 277 to 279, Buddha writes, <laughs> <laughs> one of my, what, I memorize some of these things. <laughs>
0: you know more about this than I do. <laughs> <laughs> He writes,
1: all sankaras are uh, uh, impermanent, mm-hmm. constant. All sankaras a are important. a and
2: All dhammas all, are not self.
1: All dhammas. He changes the word to dhammas. Mm-hmm. So, why would he put that there and not have any chapter saying, well, but first, don't let go of yourself too quick and you know, keep a sense of self that's strategically good. He doesn't. He just said... He does. he does. He
0: does. He does. He says, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a whole chapter on self. The self is the mainstay of the self the self as the guardian of the self. Oh. That's teaching skillful self.
1: Oh, okay. Which time that? <laughs> I don't have... To, I, don't <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but notice what he says in each of those verses. This is the path to purity. Yeah. This is a path of practice. We learn to look at these things as... Mm-hmm. Inconstant, stressful, not self, because those are the things that lead you to want to let go. Now, the reason he says dhammas at the at the last one yes, is that there is it is possible to attain an experience of the deathless and to cling to it. Right. Yeah. And because you can cling to that, then he says, okay, let have to let go of even your any sense of attachment to the deathless. But it's you know hold on until you get there, then you let go. Yes.
1: Um, it seems like there would be more karmic merit in making skillful choices, just like uh, when you're in your mundane moments and at the very end at death. Mm-hmm. So why is there so much um, importance placed on that
0: final moment? Well, it's, it's, as you said, it's good it to... Be to
1: Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you know this is this, then it, it would be easier to make a big change or,
0: you know, make some choices. Well, you th- if, you, if you can develop that attitude, that you're willing to let go. And this is something you have to develop over time, which is why, as you say, the moment-by-moment-by-moment the by moment by moment efforts are actually more important. There is a... It's not in the Pali Canon, but the later... In the later tradition, they actually rank the the, sort of the strength of your karma. And the strongest karma is either something that's really, really good or really, really bad. We're talking about really bad, we're talking about killing your parents, killing an arahant, wounding the Buddha, causing a split in the monastic sangha. And that kind of thing, no matter what happens after that in your life, you're bad news. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) As for, you know, attaining states of jhana, okay, that's really, really good karma or if you attain any of the noble attainments like stream entry, etc., the lower levels of awakening, then it doesn't matter what your last moment is. That the force of that good karma will see you through. That's the strongest. Second strongest is habitual actions. The things you habitually do through life. If you're habitually generous, habitually virtuous, that's going to be stronger than your last moment. It's only third rank is your last moment karma, the state of mind then. Although if that's a strong karma, like in other words, you suddenly gain a noble you know, noble understanding, okay, that wipes out everything else. And then it's just kind of random acts that you happen to do that were not part of your general pattern of behavior. Those are the weakest forms of karma in determining where you're going to go.
1: But when the, the random acts, it seems like they would take more effort than at the last moment when you're feeling all that. Not pressure isn't the right word, but you you have the fire under you to -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. do something. And most people, when they have the fire under them, will just grab on tighter. Uh A friend of mine, Larry Rosenberg, was with his mother at her deathbed. And he was holding on to her hand, she was holding on to his. And he said, "Okay, okay, Mom, it's okay, let go. Just sort of go into the light, whatever. And the more he said, let go, let go, the more she was holding on tighter and tighter and tighter. And then he finally so he realized, okay, this is not working. <laughs> <laughs> and so then he says, okay, Mom, we love you. We always love you. And then she began to let go. Because And my own father, when he was dying, he was really holding on very tightly to whatever. You know. And that, this is the nature of the mind. If it hasn't been trained, and this is why, as you say, it's good to train it before that point so you develop the right habits that you realize the peace that can come from letting go. My own near-death experience was nothing with a tunnel of light, nothing like that, it was electrocuted. And to make a long story short, the first thing that went through my mind was, I'm going to die for my own stupidity. I was sort of checking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and immediately there was this feeling of regret. I mean, I was only in my 30s at the time. I said, I mean, this is awfully young to die. And then, and then, you know, I wasn't going to get to say goodbye to my parents or anything. And then something else kicked in. and said, wait a minute, here I've been meditating all this time for this moment. You know, let's do it right. Okay. And then whatever came up in my, in my mind, I just let go, let go, let go, let go. And if you haven't had that practice, you're not going to think of that. But if it's become habitual. And so this is why when you're meditating and your mind wanders off, bring it back. You're developing a good habit. When there's pain, you don't get upset by the pain. You say, "I can handle the pain, no problem." Because those are the things. It's the, the, these wild, distracting thoughts. Because the mind, when the when you can't do anything, you're sitting there, electric, being electrocuted, and you can't do anything. Your mind starts spinning really fast, trying to find some place to go, something to do, something to latch onto. And this is because this is the nature of this feeding, predatory mind. It just latches on. But if you trained it, okay, let go, let go, let go, then it can let go. What was really bizarre about the experience was that finally when the current was cut, before I died, um, (laughs) for me it felt like five minutes had happened, passed. The people who saw it said it was like (laughs) that. Which means that your mind spins really fast when that happens. So when you're sitting and meditating, you regard it as, well, this is practice in how to die. I mean, it's also, it's also practice in how to live, but it's also practice in how to die, learning how to let go when you need to. So keep it up habitually and don't wait till your last moment to suddenly decide you have to let go. Okay? Yes.
1: Well, that expensive reality is a mindset. Yeah, yeah. but it's kind of relaxing to that non-self.
0: It's not actually non-self, but it's this larger sense of space, yes. which can become a kind of self. But if that's the, if that's your best choice, you know, go with your best choice. Mm-hmm. At That point. Yes. two things. One, can you make it go away? First, you want to get it under your control. If you can make it go away, then make it come back. Make it big, make it small. Once you've got it totally under control, then bring it into your whole body. And see what happens there. That I end the session with a chant. So, if you sit and meditate for a minute, I'll chant for you. I want you to know how much I've enjoyed this.
2: <laughs> this is the Metta Sutta. Sam, Bagavato, Arahato, Samma, Sambudasa, Sama Sam, Arahato, Samma, Sama Napmota Sam, Arahato, Samma, Sambudasa, Garonia Mata Yantang Santang, Badanga, Bissamecha, Sako Ujoja, Suhocha, Suachocha, Samuduanati Mani. <imitation> sanhu sano ja su paru japak ke cho jaasa hugati jani ho naja kurang samajare jare kin chi yna when no wa no suki tata ye ke chipan buttata hawa ye mata wa majimara dintawe jandure was sania we dore fota wa sam hoe siwa sanmbesata hawantu sukitata naboro barang ni beta nati manya takkataci nakin chibiaaro sunna kasanya nanya manya sad wartawan Mata ya tani angmboang ayu saie evaṁ ke mana sambhavaya power ya bari manang me mana sam etang satanga dhimthaya brahma metang we harang Itamahu di tenchan upagama silava dasnena sampano kamesu veneyengen dhang nahi jatunga pasayam borade te te
0: I thank you for your attention. I hope that this has been a useful weekend. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um there are more teachings on accesstoinsight.org. There's a new there's a new website called Sutta Readings s-u-t-t-a Readings.org in which you have different Dharma teachers reading passages from the Pali Canon in English. And there's also Dhammatalks d-h-a-m-m-a-t-a-l-k-s.org that has my Dharma talks, plus a series of chants. I've been told that the chants were very well recorded and sound really nice (laughs) to the monks out of the monastery. So I hope that all those resources are useful and help yourself to the books at the back. Wrap up.